I'm about to tell you a story you've heard before. It's almost certain you've heard this story before, but it's helpful for us to remember it today, so you all just humor me. This young lady was preparing a dinner for her friends, cooked her family's famous pot roast. Everybody loved it. Everybody raved about it. One of her friends said, I'd love the recipe. She said, sure, gave it to her. The girl got home, started looking at the recipe. First step, very unusual. Cut both ends of the pot roast off. She thought, well, why do you do that? She called her friend. She said, hey, friend, why do you cut the ends off the pot roast? She said, I don't know. My mom gave me the recipe. So she said, I'll, I'll talk to mom next time and ask her. So she was talking to her mom. Hey, by the way, a friend really liked our roast recipe, and uh, she's curious about the first step. I've never even thought to question it. Why do we cut the ends off the pot roast? Mom said, I don't have any idea. I got that recipe from your grandma. So uh, I'll just ask her next time I talk to grandma, and uh, we'll figure it out. So mom's talking to grandma a few weeks later and said, hey, by the way, uh, granddaughter's friends love the pot roast recipe. They ask a question of her. She couldn't answer it. She asked a question of me. I couldn't answer it. I'm going to ask you, why do we cut the ends off the pot roast? She said, well, when I wrote that down, uh, we had a really small pan. So in order to make pot roast fist, I had to cut the ends <laughs> off the pot roast. All right. Now, terrible story, dumb story. Uh, how that could continue generationally without someone asking a question just proves how incurious most people are, but I digress. Either way, I share that with you today because sometimes, sometimes our, our understanding of revelation is the result of a, a pastor or respected teacher cutting the ends off the pot roast and it not occurring to any of us to ask the question, Why? So we are, with this book, probably more so than any other book in the Bible, handed a set of assumptions that it has never even occurred to us to question why we are asking or doing certain things at certain points in the book. And our text today probably illustrates those assumptions and what can happen to us when we make them more clearly than any other of the chapters in the book. So today will be a little unusual in our approach to preaching through this book, but I hope you'll find it helpful in, in spurring you along to do your own digging uh, so that you know why the ends are cut off the roast. So hope you found Revelation chapter 7. Would you stand please as we honor the reading of God's word? After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the seal, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar. 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. 
After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hand, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know... And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb is in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Then the first verse of chapter 8, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, one of the key things that I want our church family to take away from this series is the understanding that conservative scholarship has always offered us a handful of assumptions that have created, in turn, a variety of options for interpreting the book of Revelation. In other words, there are men and women throughout history who have believed in the final authority of Scripture, who have believed in the infallibility of Scripture, who have believed that the the scriptures are the final say on any matter, who have a different set of assumptions when reading the book that therefore bring them to a different conclusion to the specifics that the book is communicating. It has been that way throughout Christian history. It is that way today. Theological conservatives have always understood that there is more than one way to slice the Revelation pie. Now, I get how that can be unsettling to some of us, but it shouldn't be because those same theological conservatives all believe in the five tenets of Christian fundamentalism of which the visible physical, bodily return of Christ is one. They just disagree with one another on how the events leading up to that turn will unfold. And those differences don't define who's going to be in heaven and who won't be. All right? That's very important for us to to understand. They don't define whether you're in Christ or not in Christ. They define how you look at the book of Revelation. Now, by way of reminder... Here are my assumptions. I believe that the canvas upon which Revelation is painted is the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse is the teaching of Christ that is the direct response of the disciples' question to Christ, how will the end of the world 
take place. Based on the Olivet Discourse and numerous other supporting passages of the New Testament, I believe that the church is present all of the way through the book of Revelation, meaning that the church is present all the way through the tribulation and is not physically removed from the world by Christ before the events of the book unfold. I believe in that physical removal called popularly the rapture. It's just that I believe that takes place as a part of the second coming at the end of the book. Now, because of those assumptions, that's going to mean that I'm going to read Revelation 7 in a way that is likely wildly different from any way that you have heard it taught to you before. I read Revelation 7 as a vision of God's people, as a vision of those who have embraced Jesus as Messiah and Savior and Lord. In other words, I believe Revelation 7 is talking about the church. And as such... I believe there is a message in Revelation 7 that is often missed, that is meant to be incredibly comforting in the difficult times that we face in the here and now, and will be an incredible comfort to those who are alive and remain, if I read Revelation correctly, when the great tribulation takes place. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going <laughs> we're to take a walk through my brain. Which, honestly, yeah, everybody gasped. Oh, my gosh. No. Will we ever get out? All right? I get that. We're going to take a walk through my brain and how I process this. Not because I want you to believe about this and the timing like I believe about it. Let me just let you in on something. I don't get bonus points if you agree with me on this. All right? God is not going to... On his little checklist, there's no checklist, but go with me. He's not going to, on his little checklist with me, say, Derek, did you convince everybody to believe as you believed about the tribulation? He's not going to ask me. It, I don't care. I really don't care if you believe like I believe about the revelation. I care that you know why the ends are cut off your roast. And so by showing you why I cut the ends off my roast, I hope that it will encourage you to figure out why you do because, frankly, most of us believe what we believe because we have uncritically received teaching that have taught us otherwise and we've never thought to explore it for ourselves. So that's why we're doing all this today. So let's get with it. Let's start by making sure we understand what prompted the vision in the first place, we go back to Revelation chapter 6, if you would please look at verse 9. Revelation 6, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So here's what's going on. I believe, as I taught last week, that the seals of Revelation are unfolding for us what happens in Christian history, the conditions that have faced the church throughout Christian history. And those conditions have included uh, a physical world in rebellion against God and not like it should be because of sin. And then also satanic opposition against the church, persecuting the church. And the church has felt the weight of all of this 
this being disconnected from God uh, in, a, in a world that is filled with sin and has felt the persecution of uh, the forces of Satan against the church, and they're just saying, God, how long? How long until you do something about it? Now, do you remember God's answer to them? He says, not until everybody who is appointed for martyrdom has experienced martyrdom. So he says to them, not yet, and there's still more trouble to come. But then with the popping of the seal in, uh, at the end of, of chapter 6, the, the breaking of the, the, the sixth seal, we see God rising to say the time is at hand. And when the world sees that judgment is coming, they cry out, well, who can stand? Who will be able to stand in the face of God's judgment? And I believe that Revelation 7 is an answer to the prayer of the saints with the breaking of the fifth seal and an answer to the fallen world as to who will stand at the end of chapter 6. And this is where that cut row story I talked about comes into play for me. My guess is that almost everyone who is here has had an experience with biblical teaching on the book of Revelation where they have heard the 144,000 reference literal ethnic flesh and blood Israel. There are many renowned Bible teachers who I have enormous respect for who believe that the 144,000 refer to a specific group of Jewish believers whose purpose it is to witness to the gospel of Christ during the Great Tribulation. Men like John MacArthur, men like David Jeremiah, men like Charles Swindoll, who's my favorite preacher of all time, and on and on and on teach that. And they have biblical reasons for reaching that conclusion. But many, including me, believe that there's a better explanation of the biblical data that exists for us to understand who the 144,000 is. I don't believe that this is a literal reference to literal Israel. Why? Well, first, because of the list of tribes itself. John provides a list of the tribes here that is completely unique in all of Scripture. There's no other list that is constructed like it in the Bible. No other list of Israel's tribes bears any resemblance to John's list. Now, to be completely transparent, that kind of thing is not completely unheard of. Old Testament writers operated usually with a birth order kind of list, but in Ezekiel 48, Ezekiel is giving a prophecy of the coming of the Messiah and his reign over his people, and he lists the tribes from north to south. So the tribe that's listed at the first represents the northernmost tribe, and the one listed last, the southernmost tribe. So in essence, when he lists the tribes, he says, you know, North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, you know, all the way down. Now, John of Revelation clearly knows about Ezekiel and his prophecies. In fact, if you know to look for them, you know that, that John is, is being reminded of them continually through the vision that God has given him. So speaking of the coming reign of the Messiah, which is ultimately what Revelation is, is about, you would think that he would use Ezekiel's list here, that north to south list. Because he's using a lot of those prophecies, but he doesn't. He doesn't. Why? Because of something I think that he has already shown us, that being that true Israel, the Israel of God, as Paul talks about it. 
is not ethnic Israel. Twice already, in Revelation 2 and Revelation 3, John is referred to a group who say they are Jews. This is a quote, say they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. It is a reference to the letters or to the churches uh, of of Revelation 2 and 3 to whom letters are being written. It is a reference to worshiping Jews who claim to be God's people, who claim to be worshiping the one true God, but who are actually Satan's tool to persecute the true people of God, the church. The point, that the true people of God are not defined by their ethnic heritage, but are defined by their allegiance to Christ. And John is not alone in this thinking. Paul in Romans 4 and Galatians 3, among other places, states that what makes someone a true child of God, what makes someone the Israel of God, isn't their Jewish blood, but their faith in the Savior's blood. Peter in 1 Peter 2 tells his readers that those who have trusted in Jesus are the chosen people, the royal priesthood, a holy nation, not those who have Jewish blood. So the three men who are responsible for more ink in the New Testament than any other persons in human history all say that the true people of God are those who have trusted in Jesus. So the answer to the question that might be given you, who are the chosen people, who are the true people of God, needs to be, well, you're looking at one of them. You, as a child of God, are the Israel of God, the true people of God. The true people of God are those who are part of the church that bears his name. And I think this list is meant to call attention to that fact. It begins with how it begins. (laughs) He starts with the tribe of Judah, very unusual. Why would he start with the tribe of Judah? He starts with the tribe of Judah, I believe, and many believe, Because of what the tribe of Judah represents, Jesus was ethnically descended from the tribe of Judah. He starts his list of Israel by defining it by the Messianic tribe. In my view, that is why he starts with the tribe of Judah. Then he omits omits, uh, two of the tribes of Israel altogether. He replaces the tribe of Dan with Manasseh. And then he replaces the tribe of Ephraim with Joseph. Very unusual thing to do. So in my view, it's hard to claim that this is a reference to literal Israel when literal Israel, by its tribal designations, isn't represented in the list. So what's the function of listing them? Remember again, the breaking of the sixth seal at the end of Revelation 6, meaning to communicate once again that God is rising to judge the earth and the world is crying out, who will be able to stand? And the answer of Revelation 7 is the true people of God will be able to withstand the judgment that is coming because Christ has already received in himself the judgment for their sin. Jesus is the one standing between God's people and the judgment of God. In other words, only those who are God's people will be able to withstand in the judgment. The judgments that God will unleash at the end see the church protected in the midst of. This does not mean 
that the church will not experience the hatred of Satan and the persecution of those who have rejected the Messiah. But it does mean that those who have given themselves to Jesus will be protected in the midst of the judgment that God unleashes on the world, just as Noah and his family were protected in the ark when God unleashed judgment on the world for its sin during the flood, and just as Israel was protected from the more savage of the plagues as God judged Egypt for its sin. The hundred 144,000 represent God's promise of protection to God's people alive and in the midst of the tribulation to come. And the great multitude, which if you will remember from our reading, are those who came out of the great tribulation, meaning those martyred in the great tribulation, meaning that those who were not yet numbered in the breaking of the fifth seal, those people who have come out through their death of the great tribulation, represent the promise of God from the eternal perspective. So it goes like this. God is saying to the people who are his when when history begins to unwind the full forces of a world that hates me will be brought against you we're going to see that in a few weeks but I've got you I've got you I'm going to preserve you through the midst of it doesn't mean you won't be persecuted but it does mean that you will not experience the judgment that they are going to experience and in your weak moments I want you to look ahead to eternity I want you to look ahead to those that do lose their life in the persecution to come. And I want you to remember their experience, Revelation 7, 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence and they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to the springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death is but for a second. But eternity is forever. There's an image that comes to my mind, a horrific image. You'll probably remember it several years ago. The brutes of ISIS marched out about 20 Coptic Christians onto a beach. Coptic Christians, for just really kind of cut to the chase, are Egyptian Christians. And they made a statement. And then the brutes of ISIS murdered them cut their heads off. The last word on many of those Coptic Christians' lips was Jesus. And we think, what a horrific thing. What a horrific price to pay. I don't know if I could do it. I think you're a fool. If you look inward on yourself and say, yeah, I could do it. But here's how you know you've got a hope of making it through. You remember eternity. Death is but for a second, but your experience 10 billion years times 10 billion years into affinity is before the throne of God. Experience the blessing of salvation, which is not escaping seven really bad years, but, but experiencing Jesus. That's the blessing. That's what it means to be a follower 
of Jesus. So in summary, Revelation 7 teaches this. God has provided for his people. He has spared them the judgment on the world that is to become because they have given what uh, is to be judged over to Jesus and he experienced that judgment in his body. Those who suffer at the hand of Satan by way of those who rebel against the judgment of God will one day experience sorrow and suffering no more. This is why the lamb is worthy. So let's just close and make sure we understand two things. First, the people of God now and in the future should always look to God's protection. They should look to God's protection from judgment. As already has been mentioned, those who have received Christ Jesus as Lord are not destined for the wrath of his judgment. If we are alive and remain on earth when that wrath begins to be poured out, we are protected from it, just as the people of Israel were protected from it by the blood of the sacrifice. And the blood of the sacrifice, in our case, is the spotless Lamb of God, Jesus. It doesn't mean that we will not experience difficulty and trial and even the worst kind of persecution. It just means that our destiny, regardless of what happens to us, is secure. But that same protection at the end times church can also be what we can anticipate as we navigate life today. 2020 saw a lot of hand-wringing about the future of the church in America, but that has been completely wasted effort. It has been a symptom of what Pastor Jonathan calls small God syndrome. Ultimately, stop and think about this. What can the world do to you? Marginalize you? Yes. Condemn you? Yes. Kill you? as is happening to so many in less free parts of the world today? Yes. But I have been sealed by God, and nothing can take away what he has given me, and what he has given me is himself, which means he has given me everything. And that leads us to the last truth to remember. The people of God now and in the future, need to look to God's promise. Now look, I get how unsettling it can be to hear that your pastor believes this book teaches that the church is present for the cataclysm to come. And though it may have been historically what the church has believed, that's why it is known by its formal name as historical premillennialism. Some of you may be hearing this perspective for the first time because your preacher cut the ends off the roast differently than I did. And so here's what some of you are going to be prone to do. You're going to want to listen to preachers who cut the roast like you like it. And I get that. I mean, you're going to binge listen to people like MacArthur and Jeremiah and Swindoll on the 144,000 and the great multitude in order to find some ammunition to say, you're wrong, preacher! This preacher that I don't know but clearly is smarter than you says, <laughs> this preacher I can't email about my questions, but I can email you says, and look, I, do that. I hope you do, frankly. It doesn't bother me. I don't think those guys are heretics. I don't think they think I'm a heretic. It's just that we have a different framework for understanding what is happening in this most unusual of all Bible books. Go listen to them 
and maybe for the first time, study it for yourself and reach a conclusion based on your study with the Spirit of God about what His Word says. But hear me. Do not go looking for comfort in a promise that the Bible never gives. Here's what I mean. We have started to believe in the modern church that the very best thing that Jesus can give us is a trouble-free life. And so any hint that Christianity may actually cost us something sends us running for the hills. The Bible never promises you that you won't experience trial and hardship. I admit the jury may be out as to whether we are present for the worst of it at the end. People study and disagree. But here's what Jesus said. God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity, when he gave the Magna Carta of the Christian faith called the Sermon on the Mount, early on in his introduction, he said, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. He doesn't say, Blessed are you if you get the job, your kids are perfect. And you have a great retirement plan. He said, blessed are you when you're persecuted. And there is a a rampant heresy that has infected so many of us that has taught us that the best thing God wants for us is for a happy 80 years. And that is from hell and smells like sulfur. Jesus said, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. When we experience hardship for the name of Jesus, Jesus says we're blessed because we're showing the world what really matters. And later on, Paul and Peter say, when we experience hardship for the name of Jesus, it's a glorious thing because it allows us to have a glimpse into the great sacrifice that Christ made for us. God's promise for his people is to give us himself for eternity. And what the last half of Revelation 7 is saying to those who are still on earth, the first half of Revelation 7, is that it'll be worth it. Regardless of the cost, regardless of the hardship, It will be worth it. We are the people of God. We are the chosen people, the royal priesthood. We are a holy nation, and as such, we are protected by his seal. The church is protected by the seal of God. Our eternity is secure because he has promised us himself with himself. Fear not. It's sub-Christian. Fear not. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.